Well, as I said, we're finishing up the book of Mark today, Mark chapter 16. And so let me just say this, it's kind of a, uh, a challenging chapter because it may read in a number of your Bibles, it may read that uh, a portion of the chapter that we're looking at today is not in some of the earlier manuscripts. And so if you have an ESV or a New American Standard Bible or even a New King James, you may, you may see that. So I wanted to address that. There are uh, two places in particular where we really see that, John chapter 8 and Mark chapter 16. And so there's a little bit of a debate about that, so I just want to speak to it. So I want to talk a little bit about our Bibles, where our Bibles came from. Okay, so the, the book that you have in your lap, that is a miraculous book. That is a miracle book. God's fingerprints all over it. It is the God-breathed, God-inspired Word. And um, throughout history... People have tried to destroy it, snuff it out, get rid of it, but they cannot. God's Word endures. And God said He would preserve His Word. And He has. And we have it. And it, it changes lives. It sanctifies. It transforms by God's Spirit. It's living. It's breathing. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And uh, it's just a wonderful book that I know that we all cherish. That's why we come together uh, in a context like this to learn it. So I just want to talk a little bit about it, how we got it. Well, as you know, it's 66 books. There are 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. It has over 40 different authors that have contributed to this. Many different backgrounds. Some of these authors are kings, some priests, some shepherds, some fishermen, etc. It was written in three different languages. Originally, the original manuscripts, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And over a period of 1,600 years, uh, these, these books were compiled. That's amazing, is it not? And so, now I want to zero in on, on the New Testament. The New Testament documents were compiled. They were handwritten from between the, the middle of the first century to the end. So between the middle of the first century to the end of the first century, the books were actually being written, what we call the New Testament writings, or New Testament Bible. And they were sent out to the intended recipients, and then they would be hand-copied and sent out again, and multiplied and multiplied, and people would receive them and, and copy them and send them on. And, and so now we have discovered that there are thousands of ancient manuscripts of New Testament texts uh, that, that we just continue to find as, as time goes on. We have some 5,700 Greek fragments of uh, New Testaments, manuscripts and fragmentations, because um, obviously they become torn over time. They, they fall apart uh, throughout history and persecution. People have sought to destroy the New Testament. And so... So often what we find is very torn, it's very fragmented, but we were able to take these and compile them together and to come back up with what we have as the New Testament. And so there would be uh, certain texts, they would discover them, and so the King James Version came from a text called the Textus Receptus. That was the text that was used. It was discovered at a certain point. Well, sometime later they found even older texts. They found the Codex Sinaiticus uh, and the Vaticanus, and they considered these to be more accurate, more dependable, more reliable translations. And in these, we find that a couple of these texts are not actually in there. 
uh, particularly the one that we're looking at today. So some people have said based on that that um, at some point in time some well-meaning scribe inserted this for whatever reason. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. But not everyone is convinced that that is the case because there could be even older manuscripts that we don't have that do have those texts in there. We don't know that. And what we do have that's pretty fascinating, we have over a million quotes from early church fathers where they were either writing commentary on the Bible or sermons about the New Testament. And they can actually recompile. If we got rid of all the ancient manuscripts, all the Bibles, everything that we had right now, and just went back to the early church fathers' writings, we could almost recompile the whole New Testament all over again just from those quotes from the early church fathers. So it's very fascinating. And, and some of those guys have quoted Mark chapter 16. So some people say, no, no, that, that text was very much in the Bible, in the New Testament at that time, or at least it was a part of Mark. People quoted from it. People uh, wrote it and sent it on. And for one reason or the other, it, it got lost. And, it, and then it was back later. I don't know. And so there are people on one side of the coin who say that text is not actually supposed to be in there. And then there are people on the other side who say that it is. And these are both very respected names uh, in the church. And some of them are more scholarly than others. And so my, my approach to this is I proceed with caution. I understand the argument. Um, some people have said that uh, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, you can see that it's so fast-paced, and we know that it was written to the Gentiles, to the Romans, and uh, we believe that it was actually dictated by Peter to Mark, and there was a really a great time of persecution at that point, and that Peter actually went on to be martyred in that Roman persecution. So they speculate that the book was written uh, really fast to get the thing done before persecution really came in and, and took everyone out in the church and that the persecution did come and that the book was cut off at a very bizarre and weird point in chapter 16 and we'll talk about that. So the theory goes that at some point some well-meaning scribe came along and finished the story. And what we find in the, the remainder of chapter 16 it does not contradict uh, any New Testament teachings. It just seeks to kind of close the story out. And it's very consistent with the rest of the Gospels. So some people have suggested that that is the case. That's why we have this in our Bible. It wasn't in the New Testament uh, document of Mark originally and it later was inserted. That's what some people think. Some people think that it was there from the beginning and it got lost at some point and, and brought back. And so I don't really know. I don't know uh, how to answer that. I just um, take a middle ground and I proceed with caution and I compare it to the rest of the New Testament. And as I said, everything that we see in uh, Mark 16 it is consistent with the rest of the Gospels. So... I'm going to teach it as such. We'll proceed through, through the chapter and I'll, I'll kind of show you how it lines up with, with other accounts and text. And so uh, that's, that's how I handle it. And uh, I have great confidence in this book. Um, God said He would preserve His Word and He has. If there are any issues in there that, that do create some concern, we know what they are. Because we have... I mentioned we have 5,700 copies in Greek. Um, that is spectacular. That is out, there's no other document out there like that. Um, for instance, the writings of, of Plato, for instance, they have ten. Ten. Uh, 
And these were manuscripts that were written some 1,600 years you know, later. And so it just um, doesn't even compare. So with that, um, the, the New Testament is trustworthy. We know it to be the inspired Word of God. And through many godly uh, scholars, uh, we understand what we're working with, uh, the areas that are of some confusion or concern, but, but by and large, vastly, we have complete and total confidence in what we're looking at. It, it just it, it all lines up. So, having said that, let's go ahead and dig in. Let me ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for your word, we trust it, that it has been preserved just as you said that it would be, and we uh, have experienced how your word does indeed change lives, and we thank you for that. And so we thank you for this word that is in front of us today, and I pray that by your spirit it would minister to our hearts and lives. I pray that you would create within us a deeper desire for you and for your word, a greater hunger for your spirit, and I pray that you would encourage us, refresh us, challenge us, and that uh, you would receive glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, so as I said, we're closing the book, and I've titled this message, The Resurrection and Ascension of Jesus, because ultimately that's what we're looking at. We've been tracking chapter by chapter towards the end of this narrative, and we have considered how Jesus has been betrayed, arrested, put on trial, he was crucified, he was buried, and today we're going to look at the account of Jesus. Uh, he is risen again from the dead, and then he ascends into heaven. I started to name this uh, the basics of Christianity or Christianity 101 because that's kind of what we're looking at. It's such a neat way that this book closes. As we consider the three years of Jesus' life and his gospel ministry, it really does kind of end on a practical note. And you're going to see that as we move through it. And having said that, I just want to point out, it's going to seem like a lot of random points. And that is the danger when you cover large portions of Scripture. It's going to seem like I'm all over the place and uh, it could feel that way. So I just want to lay that out before we get into it. These are our core fundamentals of the Christian faith. Basic, practical ideas that, that come with with our beliefs. And so we're going to be looking at faith. We're going to be looking at the resurrection. We're going to be looking at discipleship, at baptism. And, and as I said, these are all core tenets of the Christian faith. And so I just want you to kind of keep it within that framework. This is the close of the book. And we kind of end on that note as we consider the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord and, and uh, kind of the, the command that Jesus leaves us with. As Christians. So having said that, let's move in. Verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. So now, this is the first day of the week. The Sabbath has passed. You'll recall they wanted to get Jesus off the cross before the Sabbath. They didn't want Him hanging on the cross. That was against their law. So Jesus has been in the tomb, dead. And now they come on the first day of the week. And they find that the tomb is empty. And this is why we celebrate on the first day of the week. 
The reason that we gather here today has nothing to do with the Sabbath. The Sabbath had had passed, and now they come, they find the tomb empty. So the early church began to meet on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Most of us probably know that here, but where I'm from, a lot of people are really confused on that point. Uh, You'll often hear people say that we gather on Sunday, this is our Sabbath, and that is just simply not the case. And so we gather to celebrate and to look forward to We celebrate the resurrection of Christ and we look forward to His return. Just a little side note. What I find very interesting is is they're coming to minister to the the dead body of Jesus. They're going to anoint Him with oil and spices and they don't even know how they're going to get in there. They don't even know, they know that there's a large uh, stone that is in front of the tomb and they can't get in. They don't even know, but they're going anyways. I find that amazing. It's really kind of an act of faith. Have you ever been in that situation where you know there's something that you're desperate to do, you you need to do it, you want to do it, and you don't even know how it's going to happen, but you're just going to step out? That's very consistent throughout the Bible. That is faith. And uh, we see that even in the Old Testament where they're crossing of the Jordan. I believe it's in the book of Joshua. And they're told to go down a step into the Jordan River and to walk across. And as they step down into the river, the river stops. It parts. But they had to step down into that water. And there was no guarantee that that was going to happen. That was faith. And so I see even that. These these women in their uh, desperation to go and to minister to the body of, of Christ, literally his, his dead body at that time, they were just going for it. And we're not given these details in Mark, but Matthew gives us a little more clarity about what's going on here. Um, that tomb was actually being guarded by Roman soldiers at this point, per the Pharisees' request. They didn't want anybody to come in and take the body. They knew about the prophecies that Jesus had made, saying that He was going to rise from the dead, and word had circulated so they had it set up where the tomb would be guarded and according to Matthew uh, an angel shows up and he's sitting on the stone and his countenance was like lightning and they were terrified and I love that because they were mocking Jesus before but it ain't so funny now those punks they're not so tough are they they run scared and uh, I just see that as you know a little slap from the angel, you know, you you ain't laughing now, and they run off in fear. And the Pharisees actually paid these guys to claim that they fell asleep and that the body was stolen. But we're told by Matthew what actually happened there with the rolling of the stone from the tomb. And when Mary and the lady showed up, the stone was already rolled away and nobody's there. They look into the tomb, verse 5 in Mark, and entering the tomb... They saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and they were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So the young man sitting in the tomb, obviously this would have been an angel. He was a messenger. That's what the word angel means, angelos. It's a messenger. And what was his message? It was a glorious message. The message is, you've come to seek Jesus, but He is not here. He is risen. He's risen. 
And He tells them that He's going ahead of them to Galilee just as He had said. So the resurrection has happened. It is now complete, guys. We have to understand the resurrection is the bedrock of the Christian faith. If we don't have the resurrection of Christ, we have nothing. So it wasn't enough for Jesus to simply live a perfect life. That was necessary. It wasn't enough for Jesus to simply die on our behalf, although that was necessary. He had to rise again from the grave, just as He had predicted. And that there are a number of implications that come from the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. One, the very fact that He rose gives us confidence that we too will rise. The Bible refers to Jesus as the first fruit among many brethren. He was the first to rise like this, and we will follow in kind, because He has secured that hope for us. But if Jesus had not have risen again, uh, we could say that it's very likely that He was a sinful man. He was a sinful man and He died for His sins and, and He is dead and it's as simple as that. But the fact that He rose tells us He truly was guiltless and that He died, He justified us in His death, the innocent for the wicked, and He rose again victoriously. And it tells us that God was pleased with His sacrifice. The fact that Jesus rose again from the dead tells us that God was pleased with the sacrifice of His Son for the, the guilt, guiltless died on behalf of the guilty. And I have this quote in your notes if you'd like to read along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 13 through 19 here. It says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ whom He did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all the most pitiable. So Paul's making the point that if there is no resurrection of the dead and Jesus didn't actually rise, then we have no hope. We're still in our sins. We will not rise from the dead either. So the fact that Jesus rose from the tomb, this is fantastic news. This is the bedrock of the Christian faith. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died the death of the wicked on our behalf and He rose again from the grave victoriously so that if we put our faith and our trust in Him, we will be saved. That is the Gospel message. So the resurrection was necessary and the resurrection happened and we have it recorded for us here in Mark. And let me just say this. When we talk about baptism, we talk about the crucifixion, the crucified life. We talk about how we have been crucified with Jesus. It's no longer we who live. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me, right? We, we talk about, we understand what that means. We talk about baptism, how that represents the, the old man. He was lowered down into the grave. That's what the water represents. He died. And then He is risen into the, the newness of life as a new man, a spirit-filled man <clears throat> or woman. But we don't often talk about the ascended life. We have also ascended to the heavenlies. And now we are to have our minds set on those things which are above where Christ Jesus sits. We kind of stop short of that. 
Uh, we've been crucified with Christ, no longer I who lives. We have been buried and risen into the newness of life, but then we can still be so earthly minded. We can still get so caught up with the temporal things, so distracted with the temporal things, so offended and frustrated and discouraged by temporal things. Our mind has not ascended. That's an interesting thought, is it not? And so, just as Christ has been crucified and risen and has ascended, so have we. So too should we. Alright, well, moving on here, verse 9. Now when He rose early on the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom He had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with Him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that He was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, He appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Okay, guys, so now we're moving into this portion of the text where some of your Bibles may say this was not in the, uh, the, the earlier manuscripts. Uh, and I will say this, a point of consistency. What we're looking at is very concise, uh, and I'm going to explain it. These things that we just read in these few verses are things that are found in other Gospels, and it's stated in a very concise way. And guys, that's very consistent with the rest of Mark. All of Mark up to this point has been action-packed, very fast-paced, and we see the same, the same here. So I see consistency even in that. And so we're told of Mary. Mary came to the tomb. The tomb was empty. She saw Christ. She was the first one to see the risen Christ. And we're given a more detailed accounting of this in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. You can read that later. But she didn't know. The, the body was gone. Jesus shows up. She's talking to Jesus and doesn't even know it. And she's pleading with Jesus, tell me where the body is and I'll, I'll go get it. And then Jesus says her name, says Mary, and then she, she says Rabboni, it means teacher. She, she knew that it was Jesus. Um, and so she was the first one to see the risen Christ. And then you'll notice here in verse 12, it says, After that He appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. I believe this is a reference to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32, these guys were walking and Jesus joins them, but they don't know it's Jesus. They don't recognize Him. That's very fascinating. And He's kind of like, what's going on, guys? And they're like, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Have you not heard about what has happened to Jesus? We really thought He was the, the, the Messiah, the Christ, and He was crucified. And um, He begins to walk with them and talk with them from the Old Testament about how this was to be, how the Christ was to suffer all of uh, these things. And then it says that He followed them to their home and then He broke bread and their eyes were opened. They realized, they saw, and they recognized that it was Jesus. And then He just vanishes. And they were like, did our hearts not burn within us when He opened the Scriptures to us? It's really fascinating. What's interesting to me is people don't seem to recognize Jesus at this point. Something very different about his appearance, and we see Jesus functioning in ways that that he wasn't before he was crucified. He's in one place one second, and the next second he's somewhere very far away, or they're in the room and he's not in there. And the next thing you know, they turn around, there he is. He's able to eat with them, and then he just disappears. And so it's really fascinating to see how Jesus 
is functioning differently uh, after he was resurrected and it could be some insight into our resurrected bodies and kind of how how we can function i don't know but it's an interesting thing to uh to consider but nobody believed him nobody believed their reports nobody believed mary they didn't believe the disciples from on, that were on the their way to emmaus and so jesus he addresses that verse 14 Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So Jesus deals with them for their unbelief. He reproaches the disciples. And there's a sense in which I can certainly understand why they would not believe. Then you know that's that's a it's a crazy idea, a crazy thought. But Jesus, how many times have we studied together how Jesus told them this was coming? How many times did I stand here and Mark and, and read those texts where Jesus said, I'm going to be uh, scourged, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. He told them multiple times and they still didn't believe it. So the Lord checks them for that. He reproaches them for their unbelief. <clears throat> Let me just say this. The Lord loves faith. Right? The Lord loves faith. There were two things that the Lord marveled at in the Gospels. One was unbelief. He marveled at people's great unbelief. And he marveled at what? People's belief. Their great belief. And he loved faith. He loves faith. And so I have a couple of references here. Hebrews 11.6. This is the, uh, one of the greatest verses on, on faith. And it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You cannot please God apart from faith. You must first believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. I love that verse. And that is so often my prayer for you guys. I pray that. Lord, there are people that are going to come here today to hear Your Word. And I pray that You would reward them for that. Despite me, I pray that You would work through me and You would reward these people because they have come here today trusting and believing that they're going to hear from You. And so I pray this verse for you guys. And so... The Lord is a rewarder of those who by faith seek Him. But then in John 20, we know the story well. Thomas, one of the disciples, he didn't believe. The rest had seen that Jesus rose from the grave, but Thomas still did not believe. And so when Jesus finally shows up and shows Himself to Thomas, Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And he says, You know what? Blessed are you. You've seen Me and you believe. But blessed are those who having never seen believe. And that's us, guys. Isn't that cool? Jesus spoke about that. There are going to be people who won't see me, but they will believe, and they will be blessed. They will be blessed. And then 1 Peter 1.8 says, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And so we haven't seen Him, but we love Him. We believe. We have faith in the truth. And that, that pleases the Lord. That delights the heart of God. We can't please Him any other way. It's only by faith. So we don't want to be unbelieving. We want to be believing. Amen? Alright, well, moving on. Verse 15. Now we're going to start looking at the Great Commission. So now Jesus gives a command. He says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. I want to point out that baptism and believing is, is so often tied together. Believe and be baptized. Belief and baptism are almost inseparable in the New Testament. But we've done this really weird thing where we have totally separated it. People will believe and they'll confess Christ and maybe never get baptized. They treat it like it's just not even necessary, it's not important. Or they get really weirded out and they start to get stressed about it and some sort of anxiety and they, they don't do it. But the two were really synonymous in the New Testament. And so often when someone believed, they were baptized right away. Now let me just say this. You're not saved by baptism. And that's not what I'm, what I'm trying to communicate here. I believe the Bible clearly teaches that, that you are saved by faith. When you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you put your trust in Him, you will be saved. But baptism is very much a part of this whole thing. Jesus said, believe and be baptized. And we already kind of alluded to what it represents. And I think in part, we've gotten away from baptizing people right away because we kind of want to wait and see. Do they really believe? Does this, is this really going to take root? Are they really... Because we see people make professions and then they just go on and they turn away and they don't really follow through with it. So we want to wait. But I will say, I think part of why that has happened in our culture is because in other cultures, the very fact that they're willing to get baptized, you know that they're the real deal. You know that they're really committed. Um, because it's going to cost them. It could cost them their lives. It could cost them their family. It could cost them their, uh, their livelihood. And I told you guys a story a couple weeks ago about a, a fellow pastor here in town that was in Ethiopia and they were having a baptism service. And people were literally vomiting before they they went up there they were so scared because they knew that the moment they went down into that water they were marked people that they were going to be persecuted that there would be uh death threats put out on them and it was a very real commitment that they were making and so in that culture that was that's kind of the end point that's the initiation you're really in when you get baptized and so um, there's just something important about it, guys. If you've not been baptized in here and you're a believer, you know that you know that you have put your trust in Christ, you need to get baptized. If you haven't been baptized, then you're missing out on a very crucial part of this whole thing. I'm not going to tell you that you're not saved, but there's a sense in which you're not fully immersed into this thing. You're not walking in the fullness of what Christ has called you to. You have stopped short of something glorious. And I don't know about you guys, but I want everything I can get. Right? I want it all. Whatever the Lord has for me, I want every bit of it and nothing less. And so I didn't hesitate. I wanted to be baptized. I want to encourage you. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus and be baptized. Well, Matthew chapter 28 gives us a fuller, detailed account of uh, the Great Commission. So let me read that to you. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so this is the Great Commission. And this was the command that Jesus gave after He rose again. And he said, now I want you. He says, first, all, okay, this guy just rose from the dead. 
And he says, I have authority. We have good reason to believe that is the, the truth. He had the ability to lay his life down and take it up again. This guy, he's got authority. And he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. He says, make disciples. Go, baptize them, teach them. And so I've heard it said that the, the make disciples here is the, is the command. And the go, baptize, and the teach is the how-to. So the, the actual verb here, the command is make disciples and go baptize and teach are participles. They modify the command. And so the objective is to go now and to make disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And how do we do this? Go is actually the first part of it, first part of the command. That, that is the evangelism part. We are to go out. We are to share the gospel message. We are to be witnesses. Right? The second part is to baptize. And I, I would say that this is speaking more of the act of conversion. We want to go, we want to evangelize, and we want to see people converted. And that's, that's kind of what baptism is referring to here. So you have evangelism, you have conversion, and then it says, teach them. Teach them all the things that I have commanded you. And so I put in your notes to reproduce. I didn't want to say discipleship. I didn't want to define discipleship with discipleship. So... This was really interesting. This is something that I learned kind of recently. Um, and so I have a, a quote here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I never really noticed this before, but we're talking about discipleship now. So we've talked about faith in the Lord. We've talked about baptism. We've talked about the resurrection. These are all fundamental core ideas within our faith. Now we're talking about discipleship. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So Paul is pointing out that um, it's a relationship between him and them. He's not just an instructor. He's not just a teacher. He's a father to them. So the idea of discipleship is very relational. It's organic. It's not uh, just some sort of method or, or uh, you know, math equation. It's a relationship. It's relational. But then I wanted to really draw your attention to this. Verse 16 there, he says, Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. So Paul says, I want you to imitate me. So you would think that he would say, so I'm going to come to you. I want you to imitate me, so I'm going to come to you and, and show you what that looks like. But he doesn't do that. He says, imitate me, so I'm going to send Timothy. Isn't that interesting? So Paul knew that by sending Timothy, it was as good as sending himself. And that's essentially what we're talking about with discipleship. We are imparting ourselves to somebody else. Right? And so what, what you esteem as important as a Christian, your Christian disciplines, your understanding of the Lord, your devotional life, you're imparting that to somebody else. You don't have to teach them all, you know, take them through the whole Bible and, and get crazy with it. You're just imparting to somebody else what is important to you, what you understand to be necessary as a Christian. So Paul had done that. Paul had imparted what was important to him to Timothy, and he knew that when he sent Timothy, it was as good as going himself. 
And ultimately, what Paul is imparting to them is that which was in Christ. He said that he will remind you of my ways, but they're not Paul's ways, right? They're Christ's ways. And so I just wanted to, to draw your attention to that, guys. Discipleship is not as complicated as we may think. It's not as complicated as, as we may make it out to be. And it is crucial. It's a command. We've been commanded to believe on the name of the Lord, to be baptized, and we've been commanded to make disciples and to basically reproduce ourselves and, and other people. Now, on the flip side, that's kind of a challenge. I, I've had, when I was in the, the youth ministry and I had young guys that were uh, volunteering in there, I would just ask them, point blank, would you wish your walk on someone else? You know, would you, would you want the, the kids in this youth group to be like you? I mean, that's kind of a sobering thought, is it not? So it causes us to think we need to be walking this stuff out. We need to be legit. We need to be sincere. We need to be upright in these ways because ultimately you're responsible to impart yourself to others. As you are imitating Christ and walking with Him, you're responsible to reproduce that in someone else. And so are you doing that? Is that you? Are you seeking to imitate Christ in your own lives? And are you seeking to impart that to other people who aren't quite where you are? We should be. And, you know, um, it's, it's easy to do. There are people all around us that we can reach out to and say, Hey, would you like to have some coffee with me? And just talk. Get to know them a little bit. Um, I do it all the time. It's something that I try to make a habit of. And let me just say this. There are a number of, of you in this room right now, and you do a really good job of sneaking in and sneaking out. And we love you guys, and we want to get to know you. And so uh, you're missing out. You're missing out on half of the blessing of being a part of the body and, and getting to know our family and being a part of our family. So my encouragement to, to the people who are here, find these people that are sneaking in and sneaking out and grab them and invite them out for coffee. And you guys don't, when someone reaches out to you and invites you, Respond. Follow through. You know, enjoy Christian fellowship. Um, allow yourself to receive, to be blessed. Let discipleship happen in your life so that you can in turn disciple others. This is the, the way it ought to be. Amen? Amen? Okay, moving on. So, accompanying signs. Verse 17. And these signs will follow those who believe in My name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. This is kind of crazy verses here. And, uh, and these verses have been abused, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But let me just say this. I, w I want to take a, a middle ground approach to this, guys. We at Calvary Chapel, we are considered charismatic. We believe that the gifts have continued but we're conservative. We believe that all things are to be done decently and in order, and we believe in balance. So we, we don't try to polarize ourselves on one extreme or the, or the other. We try to have a nice, healthy, middle ground balance. So these are kind of some, these are some trippy verses. You know, There's some radical things going on here. And he says, this is going to accompany people who believe in my name. So on one sense, I, I don't want to say these things will never happen. This is just not the norm for Christians. On the other side, I don't want to be like, you know what, you should be walking in this stuff all day. You can just go out to the up valley right now, out in the vineyard, and get bit by a rattlesnake, and it'll be all good. 
you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Because we have people where I moved from in Tennessee, and I'm sure you guys have heard of this, uh, snake handling churches. They read his verse and say, okay, well, we can just pick up snakes. And there was a church handling snake in my town. I would drive past. I mean, it was not, not operating anymore, but the building was there. And I had a guy, uh, Brother Cutshaw. I mean, that brother was country. And he said, yeah, that used to be a snake handling church. And somebody got bit and they died and it kind of shut down. I, thought, I bet so. <laughs> and so anyways, there, there, that, there was a presence of that in the, the Smoky Mountains, you know. And so... Um, that's very unfortunate. I saw a documentary years ago about this, well before I was a believer. I can barely, vaguely even remember it, but the pastor had been bitten like 130 times. I mean, he just had like snake bites all over his face, and um, they were drinking mason jars of strychnine. Uh, it was insanity. And I guess they just built up an immunity to it, and people did die. People will die, and they would say, oh, you just don't have enough faith. That's what that as evidence of and so uh, people have abused that and so i want to just try to handle this kind of take a balanced approach first and foremost let me just say these signs did accompany the apostles as the apostles went out in obedience to what jesus did we see in acts i believe it was chapter 28 that paul got uh, bit by a snake remember it, it he reached down to put wood in a fire and he got bit and he just kind of shook it off and the, the locals there saw that and thought, okay, this is God's judgment. Uh, he, clearly he's done something wrong and nothing happened to him. And then they like, totally flipped and they were like, man, this guy, you know, they, they knew that, that something supernatural had happened and that he was preserved by God in that. And so we see that happen. We would see people uh, casting out demons, being healed. We would see... Um, Tongues, when the Holy Spirit fell on the church in Acts chapter 2, and again in Cornelius' house with Peter, people spoke in, in new tongues. So we saw this happen in the book of Acts. It was fulfilled literally. And I would say that these things can happen today. In certain situations, people certainly can be healed. God does still heal people. And that um, demons can be cast out. Demons are real. That stuff is really real. It happens. But I'm not so convinced that this is something that most people are just going to see day in and day out. Um, I do believe that this is most directly connected to radical gospel ministry. And in other parts of the world, it is radical. I mean, there is some real serious stuff going on there. Persecution and demonic activity and people are poor and destitute and they're desperate. And you see God showing out ways that we just don't see so much here. And I heard a story about a missionary and he was saying, you know, I was going to go on this mission trip. And the guy told me, he said, look, we need to fast for at least a week before we go. And uh, seriously, he's like, there are witch doctors out there that will shoot you with poisonous darts. I mean, it is like some demonic witchcraft kind of stuff. And I mean, in that situation, I could see this. You know, they're going out. Jesus said, do this. Go out and do this and I will be with you. That is what that promise is connected to. When Jesus says, lo, I'll be with you even to the end of the age, that is directly connected to going out and making disciples. Radical gospel ministry. And so I see that as attached to that, that idea. And so this was fulfilled in the apostles and I believe that it can and does happen in, in our day and age and around the world especially but this is not something that I would say is just part of the normal Christian life. I'm sure most of you probably have figured that out 
by now. If you get bit by a rattlesnake, I mean, go to the hospital. You know, you're in trouble. And so, um, having said that, you know, I just want to have, have a middle ground approach there. All right, so let's close it with this. Verse 19 and 20. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. So I love this. The Lord ascended and the disciples went. It was just that simple. He said, all authority has been given to me. This is what I want you to do. The Lord ascended and they got busy. They went out. The Lord spent three years investing in these guys and then He has now ascended to the right hand of the Father and the disciples went out to do exactly what the Lord told them to do. And He did exactly what He said He was going to do. And it says here that the Lord was working with them and confirming the Word through them. And so the Lord had ascended. So how was it that He was working with them and through them still? Well, the answer is in John chapter 16. I have it in your notes there. But now I go away to Him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus ascended into heaven where He was seated at the right hand and He sent the Helper and the disciples went out and they preached the Gospel and all of this was confirmed and empowered by the Holy Spirit and the church was born and here we are 2,000 years later. Is that amazing or what? And it all started with this little band of guys that were obedient to the Lord's call on their life. And here we are and we're talking about these things. Talking about the, the basics of Christianity. The ascension the resurrection and the ascension and, and baptism and discipleship and, and faith. And these are all wonderful things that we embrace as Christians. And we're not at it alone. We have the Holy Spirit. So just as they went out in the power of the Holy Spirit, we have that today. We have that same promise. We have that available to us. So that's my encouragement to you guys. Let's, this is the closing of the book. I love how the book kind of ended on that practical note. And so we have the Holy Spirit. We have our command. So we're to believe. We're to be baptized. We're to make disciples. And we're to teach them to do the same. Believe. Be baptized. Make disciples. And so we have the promise of the Holy Spirit to help us and empower us. And so let's be about the business of serving the Lord and making disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Alright, let me pray for us. Worship team, if you guys would come up. Father, we love You and we praise Your holy name. We thank You for Your Word. You have preserved it. And we thank You that You use Your Word, God, to uh, teach us, to encourage us, to shape us. And I pray that we would not just hear Your Word, but that we would do it. And I know that it is so hard at times and almost seems impossible to consider actually stepping out and reaching out to somebody and trying to encourage or invest or even disciple them. And so I pray, Lord, that by Your Holy Spirit, we would be a church that is marked by that. That we would be people who really are uh, believing, being baptized, making disciples. And so we love You, Lord. We thank You, God, for Your Word. We thank You for this adventure through the Gospel of Mark. And we, we glorify You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.